Hello and welcome to the second in the all-new run of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. I am Gary. I am Mr. Tiltaraisa. And we haven't actually strayed too far from where we were last week, have we? Because last week it was all about the 50s and how hip and happening it all was. And now we're sort of in an evolutionary phase because we've ended up in the 1960s. Can we take a production decision right here and now? Are we going to call this trend British rock movies or British pop movies? Because there's not that much rocking today. There's going to be a lot of trad jazz. That's true. Pop. Right, go for pop. Right, pop it is. Okay, so last week when our new one went up, you will have seen it say British pop movies. So, another thing that's confronting us. What order are we going to do these films in? Because you can shuffle them (laughs) in different ways. If we went oldest to most recent, it would be It's Trad Dad, Live It Up, What a Crazy World. I think Live It Up and What a Crazy World were released within a week or two weeks of each other. And yet, if we're talking about the evolution of the music, then I'd maybe put What a Crazy World in the middle, it's Trad Dad, What a Crazy World, then Live It Up. But if we're talking about the evolution of pop cinema, then It's Trad Dad has to come last. I would say that given our roles and responsibilities on this podcast, I would say the latter. Because it's a cinema aspect that we're principally focused on, isn't it? Right, so shall we start then with What a Crazy World? Hey Mr R, give us the cast. Right then, What a Crazy World, 1963. Unemployed East End lad Alf Hitchens, did he not run the store in Home and Away? Has an on-off relationship with his girlfriend Marilyn. Marilyn was in Home and Away as well. What's going on here? And a dream of hitting the big time in the music business. Cheerful, we'll see about that, (laughs) pop musical with a working class, you can say that again, background, which uses a number of genuine London locations. That was written by Alan Dace on IMDb. And... As our cast list, we have got Joe Brown of the Pepsi Challenge. Way, Susan Mon, as Marilyn, the aforementioned. Marty Wilde, much more about him coming up. Harry H. Corbett, and also Avis Spunage, who was Bongo's mum last week. Michael Ripper, who we'll talk about because he has multiple roles in this, but all under one title. And who else have we got here? So we've got Fanny Carby, who... Turns up in all sorts of things in, in this particular era. We've got Barry Bethel, David Knott. We've got Larry Dan. Michael Larry Robbins. Dan. Michael Robbins, that's right. He's at the dog track. Denise Coffey as well from Do Not Adjust Your Set. Did you mention Alan Klein yet? Alan Klein, he plays Jervis. He's the important one because I think he wrote the book. Maybe he wrote the songs. He's an interesting figure. Oh, I've got to mention by the way, uh, Monty Landis as Solly Gold. I do like that. I do like the name Solly. I think voice. Monty Landis was in Expresso Bongo, and of course he turns up in the second series of The Monkeys as multiple antagonists. Well, Solly Atwell was Del Boy's solicitor in Only Fools and Horses and was played by Colin Jeevans. The reason I wanted to single out Alan Klein, because we've got a number of different things are happening here. But last week we were talking about how that initial burst of rock and roll is... There's a lot of British people pretending to be Americans. Jim Dale singing about getting the train to Santa Fe. But between that initial burst and 1964, there comes a point at which the British get their own lexicon of how to do this. And then, of course, we have the British invasion. 
And Alan Klein's interesting. He did a, an album that didn't do much at the time, but went on to be very influential. I also mentioned in one of the books by T.J. Worthington about the influence it had on Blur in the 90s. It was called At Least It's British. So it's that thing. I mean, what a crazy world. Some of it is standard musical stuff. It's a little bit Cockney-ish. What style of music am I... I mean, I'm thinking of the, the song that I've had stuck in my head is Wasn't It Handsome Punch-Up? That's not a rock and roll song by any means. It's that not quite jazz. It's a musical song. It's not the big sweeping strings kind of musical song, but it's the comedy number. Well, this musical is really made up of a lot of comedy numbers. There's a few sincere, heartfelt ones. I'll, I'm going to be something, wait and see. Is that how it goes? And the title track, I would say, was Skiffle. But then Skiffle's an interesting thing. Skiffle is one of those examples of British people taking something very American. So they're taking American folk music, and there wasn't a Skiffle scene in the US. It's got this homemade element. I mean, Lonnie Donegan bringing his Cockney Scotsman cheekiness to some of this. Lonnie Donegan was the person who really stood out for us in the movie of the 6-5 special last time. Okay, I want to address... Uh, what I think it's not necessarily a central theme in this, although given the, the distance when you're looking at this now, I think it actually becomes the central theme. Now, you know my penchant for telling outrageous falsehoods? The more outrageous, the better. I did once try and convince a friend that Gordon Brown had made a speech in which he said that he wanted to see far more aggression on Britain's streets. And he, he was quite careful how he actually phrased this. He said he didn't, didn't want to see acts of violence. He just wanted to see overall naked aggression and then see this correctly channeled, but he didn't specify how. Now, I'm wondering, did McMillan give a speech like this in 1963? Because it seems <laughs> that the, the youths, right, all the happy clappy kids, right, last week. Okay, expressive bongos, but more sort of, you know, cynical and the rest and what have you. But otherwise, they're all just sort of like having a good old time. And I know the guy, you know, in the Daily Mirror advert doesn't like it and thinks it should be stopped, but that's because he thinks it's slightly subversive and, and probably all, you know, commies, reds under the beds and what have you. There's no fret in the 1950s, isn't there? That kind of thing going on. Where's this? Bloody Marty Wilde and the rest of them. A bunch of hoodlums. Well, clip around the ear. That's what they want. Well, bring back national service. That's what they want. Brand them! Well, I watched this before you did. And I said, this is surprising. Again, we've got this problem of, of what order do we put these things in? Because this is our espresso bongo, like you said, in that this is a more harsh view. The surprising thing was, yes, I thought the movie started with the antagonists. It starts with Marty Wilde and his gang, and they are shoplifting. They're nicking purses from people in the market. They're threatening Michael Ripper. And I thought, it's interesting starting with the antagonists. And then they got this song. They, they go into the labour exchange and they get this song. And I thought, this isn't a song you give to your antagonist. <laughs> Hang on a minute. It's like, yeah, this is the hero's best friend and his mates. And they're complaining about multiculturalism. <laughs> and so I'm watching this and I'm thinking, okay, what we need here, and I'm going to throw in a sitcom club reference here. We need Big In It. We need Clive Russell. I'm still game to turn up and just sort this lot out, basically. But then I realised, hang on a minute, we're supposed to be on their side. What's going on? The argument would be, this is how it really was. This was really how certain young people lived in inner city Britain. Yeah, but that's no reason to put it on film. And besides which, okay, fine, if it's like world action or something like that. But 
we're supposed to be on their side. What is this? Why are we not on Michael Ripper's side? Why are we not on Harry H. Corbett's side? Because they do want a bloody good hiding. Okay, now I'm going to go slightly... Not really, but I'm going to go slightly semi-serious here. It's the 1960s. What exactly have they got to complain about? In comparison with previous generations. In comparison with what previous generations have been through, specifically in the past 20 years or so. I mean, okay, presumably they, they might have gone without a bit when they were growing up with last of rationing and what have you. But really? I mean, what's this raw deal they've got that's so bloody awful? I think it's a very jaded view. If Baby Boom was really like that, then having taken all these advantages, they'd then vote for people and enact policies that took away those advantages from us. Oh, wait! <laughs> We're blaming Marty Wilde, the well, I'm not, not shopping market pickpocket for well, tuition let, fees. Now, hang on a well, Yeah, ultimately, yes. But let's get this right, because nothing against Marty Wilde, but let's put this into context. His name's Herbie Shadbolt. So, okay, now he's just a nasty piece of work. He's a horrible character. There's an episode of The Protectors in which Tom Bell plays a heartless, ruthless killer called Shadbolt. Yeah, he's not the meanest Shadbolt I've ever seen. In- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where he got the name. I'm pretty sure there's an indication it's not his real name. But I was hoping that this was going to end with Shadbolt and Borstal and... Harry H. Corbett and Abbas Bunnage saying to Joe Brown, you're lucky to escape there. You've been hanging around with him. You know, you could end up in the same boat. And meanwhile, Larry Dan and his mate, they're singing about, you know, self-sufficiency. Get a job. I don't know if I should say this, but 1963, there's still time to hang him. (laughs) Actually, having said that, there's a good chance that sometime between 1964 and 1998, Marty Wilde's character would go on to commit piracy with violence. <laughs> uh, sometime before 1971, you know he's going to commit arson in a naval dockyard. <laughs> and if you're alarmed of my knowledge of capital punishment, yeah, me too. <laughs> Tragically, it doesn't end up with him actually in the film Scum, uh, which it clearly should. But instead... Our attention is focused on young Joe Brown, and he's all right. He's hanging around with all these, you know, wrong ones, but he's all right. He's a lad. Nice enough. Yeah, he's got all these wild ideas about becoming one of those popular music stars that you hear about. And there's some nice, there's actually some nice little bits in this. I, I quite like some of the interaction in the household. And yeah, Harry H. Corbett. It's very Johnny Spatish, isn't it? Yes, yeah. But I, re- I really like, I mean, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself in the film here, but one thing I really did like was when they're talking about, both Harry H. Corbett and Avis Bunnage are talking about how Joe Brown's, you know, he's, he's wasting his life away with all these silly pipe dreams. And they're having these separate conversations at the dog track and the bingo, respectively which is where they spend pretty much every single evening. Yeah, I quite like that. That was a nice, cynical touch. But it worked, it worked really well. Well, if we're going to talk about the cinematic aspects on the threshold of Sood's Corner, we can also talk about this point where the British pop movie ends up being tied with the British New Wave. The kitchen sink dramas. The angry young men. There was a little sort of edge of that in Expresso Bongo when we saw Bongo's home life. But this is pop growing out of those kinds of grim working class conditions 
So as much as we didn't entirely enjoy this, <laughs> I think that's worth pointing out. What happens is rock and roll comes along at a time when British society is changing. Is it pretentious to say that to a certain extent they're fused? Well, now, okay, if we're going to go uh, full on late show here. There's a possibility of class mobility. There is, I mean, BBC4 had that, was it a documentary or even a season, 1960, the year of the North. So the working class are getting their own voice. And just at the same time, there's this brand new exciting music and it fuses so that you get a British form of rock and roll. I cheated a bit. I'm not supposed to watch this for many, many weeks yet, but I watched, I think it's the only surviving edition of Oh Boy, and the, Marty Wilde is in that and he's singing about being an all-American boy. Presumably it's an imported song or a song that's trying to sound like an imported song. Whereas in this, Shad Bolt is not an all-American boy. Yeah, there definitely is an aspect here of Britain pop rock scene has found its voice. Because yeah, in all those films last week, in varying degrees, they were trying to sort of ape America. And at no point did it ever go like full on days like these, but <laughs> it was it was getting sort of dangerously close. This does not seem an export-friendly film, put it that way. Actually, if you want one really great moment for that fusion, uh, when they go and see Freddy and the Dreamers. Actually, that feels a bit odd, doesn't it? Well, I just assumed that Wildwood and the rest of them were going to kick Freddie Garrity's head in because... That, that, Rightly that, that... or wrongly, Marty Wilde and Joe Brown can be used as symbols of pre-Beatles British rock. And there you've got Freddie and the Dream as part of the Mersey boom. Even though, you know, I know, yeah, Freddie's from Manchester, so but And there's this bit where Freddie and the Dreamers are singing the song Who Likes Short Shorts? I don't know if that was sung on that old boy, but that's an American song. It's from a country where you can wear short shorts a lot of the time and not have your legs ending up looking like corned beef with all the... <laughs> <laughs> you can actually wear short shorts and be comfortable. So, not American song, right? This, so. I'm coming up to that. Okay. American song, Who Wears Short Shorts? British band singing American rock and roll. But... There's something of that British working class culture, and I think you want to talk about that, don't you? Well, I'm just thinking that it was interesting that the song had a visual aspect. I'd like to see this actually counted as an official pop video. And also, it would have been nice if this had become a trope in future British pop videos, which is Freddie Garrity pulling people's trousers down. And that's just music hall. Maybe it could have happened, but I can't see that happening. In the US in 1963, in a <laughs> no. young person's film. And the way he does it, that's also the thing, the way he does it. Freddie Garrity was, to a large extent, a club comedian in spirit. And he goes, hee hee hee! We haven't really <laughs> outlined the plot here, have we? The plot takes a hell of a long time to get going. It does a bit. It feels a bit rushed at the end. Because we just see Joe's life in, I don't know, is it the East End? I don't know the South. <laughs> so it's his life in the East End where there's lots of rough boys. They live for pop music. I don't doubt there's a deleted scene of them filling in Jeremy Lloyd. <laughs> As we've alluded to, they start a fight at the Freddie and the Dreamers concert and then afterwards sing a song about how wonderful the fight was. Wasn't it an handsome punch-up? Sorry, pan shout. So they talk down there. <laughs> we haven't spoken yet about Michael Ripper. 
because I'm sorry, you... I'm going to have to stop. My head hurts. I'm divided between condemning these horrible, gross underclass and their frustrations being taken out in violent acts, and also at the same time condemning them for being a bunch of soft southern puffs. <laughs> Well, no, what they want is they want to pay a visit to Bob and Terry and their pals for a weekend. You know, That I'll was not. something that kept... I mean, the way that they all refer to women as it, and that's something you get in the likely leads. But my point is that it's showing the world that Joe Brown's character lives in. Crowded flats, pawn shops, arguments with his girlfriend, the doll... Whether he wants to get a job, and this has a different point of view from Expresso Bongo. Even though we see Monty Landis and his cigar puffing, I think there is a sense that rock and roll and pop is a way for working class boys to make good. And he's talking about, I'll be somebody. Whereas in Expresso Bongo, working class boys were the pawns in a game. Must mention Michael Ripper as well, because he's got this unusual role in which he is identified in the credits as the common man, and he appears frequently. How many times does he appear? Half a dozen or so altogether? And he appears And in adjacent scenes as well. Yeah, so he's a street trader initially, and then he's running the cafe, and he's the guy at the employment agency, and he's running the amusement arcade, and so on and so on. I think that's one thing that actually shows that we're not entirely meant to like Marty Wilde in his actions. Because if you wanted to... What do they call it? Protagonist-centred morality? I know Marty Wilde is actually the really the sidekick, but it'd be one thing if every guy you see Marty Wilde dusting up against and every old bloke he pushes against the wall was never seen again. But because it's Michael Ripper every time, you do get a sense. It's like, yeah, these, these are the consequences. It's a way of making you feel something for all these common men. You know what's going to happen to Shabbo eventually? He's going to end up in a police cell being interrogated by Regan because he's going to wander into something that's out of his depth, which actually involves some sort of elaborate plan which has been organised by Peter Vaughan or Brian Blessed or somebody, like a big-time you know, hoodlum. And oh, it's not going to go well, is it? No, he's going to end up like David Dacre in the uh, armchair cinema pilot. You just hit me. Okay, so where are we going next? Live it up. And I've got a bit of a problem here because... We appear to have watched different films because you've watched Live It Up, 1963, a comedy musical running for an hour and 50 minutes. And I've watched Sing and Swing, a comedy musical from 1963, lasting an hour and 50 minutes. It'll be the other way around because Sing and Swing was the US title. Now this, this is what I mean about these films seem to be overlapping each other. They all have one foot slightly ahead and one foot slightly behind. Because this you think, oh, it's more sanitised. It's the same thing a young boy wants to make good with the pop music. David Hemmings is more lower middle class. He's a nice boy, really. But this is the film that has people who will go on to be much more influential in the 60s and 70s. This film is the one that has real rockers in it. Not to take anything away from Marty Wilde and Joe Brown, who are very well respected in the industry. But this has Steve Marriott from The Small Faces. I think there's an errand boy played by Mitch Mitchell from the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple. 
Chaz from Chaz and Dave. I don't mean that as a flippant bit of ho ho ho. No, because he, he's right next to Richie Blackmore, I think. And though he's not influential in the rock world, despite the album he did backed by the birds, David Hemmings going to be one of the faces of sexy cosmopolitan swinging London. And there's Heinz, who I think is a symbol of just before the Beatles. I know, you know, the careers overlapped, but he's a symbol of that place British pop was at just before that big super explosion when sexual intercourse was invented. What? I'm quoting Larkin, whatever. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, I, was, I know my mind was wandering to the idea that it was actually invented in this film. That was part of the trailer for it. I've got a wild theory. You know, we're talking about the proper anglicization, not English language, but actually making pop English. Instrumental groups, they were a thing. And I think that was one way. I mean, was Telstar the first ever song by a British group to get to number one in the US? It kind of takes out that problem about what accent are you singing and what are you singing about? And I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe it's just my perception, but I always get that feeling that when you talk to people, they think about the shadows and the tornadoes as being a pre-Beatles phenomenon, or at least a symbol of pre-Beatles phenomena. Does that make sense? It does a bit, yes. I mean, I do wish there was more. I've seen, generally. The Enemy Poll Winners page from The Enemy from 1966 Something that gets handed about because best group was won by the Beach Boys. Beach Boys fans are very excited by that moment. But there's still that category there, best instrumental group. And by 1966, that feels a little bit of a throwback. I don't know when they stopped having that as a segment. Well, hang, I, 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 hang on a second, because I know it's not fully instrumental, but I think that it has to get mentioned in passing at least. What about prog rock? Even if a track is not entirely instrumental, there are huge lengthy instrumental passages in a lot of that stuff. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Rick Wakeman, that kind of thing. It might be an evolution from things like Telstar, but it's a different category from what we're speaking about. We're talking about that twangy guitar, nice men, uh, maybe even coordinated dance moves, instrumental pop from the early 60s. That's what we're talking about. So that's why I wanted to do this movie. The Beatles get mentioned in it because it's the end of 63, so they're already a thing. But I like that world. Okay, I picked it because the music is mostly produced by Joe Meek. And I like Joe Meek. I've got to be honest and say that even though we watched all three of these films last week, Live It Up is the one that has made the least impression <laughs> on me because there were things I could get hot about with What a Crazy World. And it's Trad Dad. Whereas this, I think that this is slightly more tenuous in terms of the plot. I mean, we've got a hell of a lot of Kenny Ball, which is great. No complaints about that. Put it this way, the plot reminds me of that film from last week, the one with the guy who was a disc jockey and wanted to get on TV. It, it's sort of flimsy like that. Yes. The music's just dropped in. There's a bit where David Hemmings and Jenny Moss forgot to mention Jenny Moss. Possibly most famous being in Coronation Street and was a Joe Meek recording artist as well. David Hemmings and his girlfriend, Jenny Moss, go for a little drive in the country. I think as they go on the drive, they listen to some music and then we see the band performing the music. I think it sounds incorporated. And then they're looking out, I don't know, they're looking out at a field. Maybe Jenny's wanting him to commit, get married by a semi, that kind of thing. 
get a TV on the HP. Because maybe, you know, get one that can take BBC Two. It's coming. <laughs> 625, it's the future. Whereas David Hemmings is looking at this field and he's thinking about the outlaws performing Law and Order. Now, I was trying to figure out where I had seen Ed Devereaux before. And I suppose he's best known for Skippy, obviously. But been in a lot of things, a lot of British shows. And then I suddenly twigged. He's in Snakes and Ladders. <laughs> but can you see why this is also a bit post What a Crazy World, even though it came out first? It's groups with guitars. That's the thing to be in. It's not about Joe Brown. I know What a Crazy World was a stage musical first, so there's that longer development. But it's not Joe Brown doing a skiffle song. If you want to be a big pop star, you're going to be in a group with guitars. We forgot to mention that uh, Brian Murphy was in the stage show, What a Crazy World. I'm trying to think what actually what role he would have played in the, if it was in the existing lineup. Is it right to say that there's a bit more acceptance of the pop slash rock era in Live It Up? There's just ever so slightly less of this oh, this just a um, you know, daft fad and what have you. There's still more, you know, you should get yourself a proper job because the chances of you actually making it big in the industry are few and far between. But there's perhaps a little bit less of, I don't really understand all this newfangled nonsense with these, you know, teddy boys and their guitars and what have you. Is that right? Is that, is that, is that fair? I think it's partially because of that low middle-class background. I know David Hebbing's character's dad is mildly against this music clock, but he gives him a period in which to try it and see if it works out because they've got a little bit more time to look after him. Just enough income for him to carry on his low-playing delivery boy job. So it's a class thing, man. That should have been the name of it. No, we've got uh, Peter Glaze from Crackerjack. Well, hey. And he has the temerity to suggest that the group go all the way to did I say it? Glasgow. And they're just they're horrified. It's like, we're not playing Glasgow. What do you mean Glasgow? That place where they killed Des O'Connor? What do you mean Glasgow? I'm not going all the way up there. <laughs> oh, the very idea. Actually, yeah, that, that is a sign that they maybe do lack the commitment to get to the toppermost <laughs> of the poppermost. I mean, okay, one thing if Peter Glaze had said, right, I want you to play Orkney and you want it at six o'clock tonight, it's 5-2, you better get your skates on. But no... You can get a train, you can get a sleeper overnight, it's not a problem. And it's not, we're not barbarians, you know. Not all of us. There are some nice places. Roy Jenkins, you know, he lived here. It was nice enough for him. Good enough for this Can I just give a quick shout out to listener and contributor Tyler, who's just interrupting us right now. I I haven't actually seen the the exchange, but I think he's actually messaged us to say, when are you two coming back with Jaffa Cakes and you've just replied, well, actually, we're doing it now. That we should have more of this live interaction with the listeners during shows. The only thing is we'd have to announce on Twitter when we're actually recording the shows. But here's another thing. Another throwback. One of those perfectly realistic things that wouldn't have raised any comments at the time. It's also about a teenage boy who's a massive fan of Kenny Ball. So we've still got the trad scene is still kind of a thing. And eventually that's going to go away, but it's not going to go away as quickly as the neat narrative would have it. You know, you watch a documentary about pop music, and it seems to think that every single innovation that comes along completely displaces the thing before it. 
January 1st, 1977, everybody got their hair cut, got a pair of bondage trousers, formed a punk band. Second Love Me Do came out. That was it. Everybody burned their Akabilk records, got rid of their quiffs, combed their hair down. I've already quoted an example. 1966, Enemies Poll. What do you like? Best instrumental group. There's still people listening to The Shadows and whatever lineup of the Tornadoes was existing at that point. And still probably seeing themselves as hip, young, bright, young 60s cool kids. Have we actually had anything which was in any way objectionable at this stage? Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. So we've just had Top of the Pops 84 on BBC4 just now. They've just finished the period where Frankie Goes to Hollywood was number one but wasn't being played, obviously. Now, I know that we're going to, in the late 60s, we're going to start getting songs which are not going to make the Radio 1 playlist, at least during daytime. We've not had anything like that yet, have we? By this point, 63, have we had any famous songs that were barred from the British when Broadcasting When did PJ Proby split his pants? That, that, that's a question. I, I don't know that there's actually a correct answer to that. I mean, you're looking for a date and a time? Over the have you got a theory here? Have you got a thing about how it's also nice and civilised? Well, a little bit. Even with Marty Wilde violently uh, attacking uh, Michael Ripper with his caution, what have you. I looked through The Guardian for some early mentions of rock and roll, and there's this thing. Wreck and Rollers, which is people who go and see like Blackboard Jungle and slash the seats of the cinema and trash the place. Oh, by the way, uh, PJ Proby split his pants in 1965 in Copenhagen. So there you go. I see. Right. So the point is that I'm not so much thinking about all these ruddy hooligans. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. What I'm more thinking about is anything which could be considered subversive, anything that Pete Murray would think twice about playing on the radio, anything with connotations and undertones. It's kind of how things develop. It's a bit like the development of television. In the first place, its very existence is the thing. It's just the fact that there is a box in the room that might keep you in your armchair. That's the horrible thing. That's the wonderful thing. So that's why sometimes, whenever they have what was the best decade for television, oh. The 1950s is never going to get anywhere near the top. Even I sometimes have difficulties watching 1950s television because the thing of 1950s television, one of the elements was surely the fact that it existed. Its very nature is the astonishing thing. There isn't really time to attack people's senses. Okay, maybe you've got a show called Fred. Because it's too new, even though it's something invented in the 20s. Something that ties in with these films. It's Trad Dad, Live It Up, uh, throwing back to Rock You Sinners. TV as a mass medium. The films are no longer about television. There were films about, te- well, Meet Mr. Lucifer, The Twonky. There is this wave of television as a thing in itself, but now it's no longer the novelty. But it's something you put in to indicate modernity. It's a modern thing that you're used to. I don't know, it'd be like showing the internet in the early 2000s. We're no longer making jokes about it. Saying .com is no longer a punchline. But if you show it, it just indicates these people are... 
not necessarily on the cutting edge, but it's like, yeah, these people are quite advanced. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Again, it's just a very, very small part of this evolution. Like we're saying again about rock and roll is no longer considered, oh, what's going on here? It's here. It's probably not going to go anywhere in terms of just actually vanishing, like short-term fad. What did you think of Heinz? I had no strong views about Heinz. <laughs> I'm just scrolling through the cast, trying to remember who the hell Heinz is. Heinz was the one with the very, very blonde hair. Oh, him! Yes, yeah, the, the one who you think eventually would end up in The Hague. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, his hair was unsettling, definitely. Well, that's it, really, that's what I thought about him. I hate to repeat myself, if you want to know. One of the reasons we stopped doing the sitcom club was because we found we're going, as we said before, as we said in a previous show, as I've already said three times, no, actually, I think it's more like 15 times this show, symbols of pre-Beatles pop. (laughs) Heinz, he's that kind of figure. He came from the Tornadoes. Joe Meek tried to launch him as a solo star. He was Joe Meek's real pet project. Joe Meek loved him. Heinz is a kind of Bongo Herbert. He's a boy who's been plucked out by an impresario. If you want to be more severe, a Svengali. And pushed into the big time. Had to do it, of course, with a group with guitars to get there, but... That's the interesting thing about Heinz. He's actually part of the old world pre-Beatles. He's part of the pre-Beatles world, and that's not his natural hair colour. He had to bleach it, you know, to give that dazzling look. So he's part of that thing of the person who's been moulded to be a superstar. And Questions I Can't Answer is a fantastic record. There's an interesting thing of of Heinz doing a Bob Dylan song towards the end of his career. Nice little clash of worlds. Well, it's a nice little addition to the trio, this. Like I said, it's probably the one with the least plot getting in the way of the music. Well, I kind of think, though, that it's an essential movie on the list. You could almost argue, if you were that side out, that we could have dropped What a Crazy World and watched something different. I think Live It Up is essential. Okay, I'm going to drop a bomb on you. When we do pop movies of the mid-60s, one of the films we'll be watching is the sequel to Live It Up. Core. We haven't finished (laughs) with that world. Oh, we didn't mention Gene Vincent being in Live It Up. Gene Vincent is in Live It Up. He's also in It's Trad Dad. Here's the thing. Live It Up doesn't have a soundtrack album. So you've got Gene Vincent doing a version of Temptation Baby that you couldn't buy at the time. He re-recorded it. But different studio, different producer, different sound. Jenny Moss is big. Oh, that that's one thing. It's another throwback to Rocky Sinners. For the most part, this is one of those musicals where it's a story about music. So we have songs because the story's about singers. It's not one of those stories where somebody just bursts into song. Except one time, Jenny Moss starts singing Please Let It Happen To Me on a rooftop with nobody there, but we hear a backing. And then we go back to... The music has to either happen because people are performing as part of the story or it's just somebody's internal vision of the outlaws when you're actually meant to be talking to your girlfriend. <laughs> Did that happen a lot in 1963? It must have. Because this went so spectacularly well earlier on, I'm actually going to do a retread now. Okay, ready for this? Right. 
Oh blimey, it looks as if we've actually watched the wrong film, because whilst you've been watching It's Trad Dad, released 16th of April 1962, musical comedy an hour and 18 minutes, I've been watching Ring-A-Ding Rhythm, released on the same no, day. again, you're in the UK, the UK title is It's Trad Dad, Ring-A-Ding Rhythm is the US yeah, title. Yeah, but don't forget I've got this funny internet that gives me American things. Anyway, this I enjoyed, and it's on right. I mean, it wasn't so much a curiosity, I just enjoyed it as a film. This is a really fascinating oddity. Because on the one hand, it should slot right after our last lot of films. Can I just say, we're just doing these in threes. These are not meant to be the definitive looks at all of from the early 60s and the late 50s about rock and roll music. We're just doing them in threes so that it doesn't get too monotonous. I, I would like to see it be a legal requirement that... At least one film every year featured David Jacobs, Pete Murray, and Alan Freeman. And I am fascinated by the implication that despite all three of them being successful broadcasters, presumably under contract with various broadcasting organizations, if they choose to do so, they can all just get together and put on some show somewhere, anywhere, <laughs> and then all just present it. I'm pretty sure that that kind of thing couldn't happen in 2017. You know, I mean, you wouldn't suddenly get. Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby turn up and, and say, yeah, we just thought we'd do the continuity for BBC One tonight. <laughs> what the hell? Should the other side won't mind? So this movie should slot in immediately after the movies we did last week. It should come just after, what was the last one we watched? Six Five Special, Expresso Bongo. It's Actually, it fits very nicely with Six Five Special. Some nice young people have an adventure where they get to meet some rock and roll stars and trad jazz stars and they go to a television studio but also the 60s are in full swing already this is 1962 this is such a 60s movie of a kind that the rest of the world wouldn't be getting for another couple of years well the, you know the good thing about this of course i know you're going to talk about the musicians in a moment but a big part of the appeal of this film for myself was spotting names because that's what we do on jaffa cakes and we had lots of them here we had, for example, as the usher, Hugh Lloyd. So if you went to a TV recording at presumably Associated Television in 1963 and you wanted to get in and see all those young rockers like Acker Bilk, then Hugh Lloyd was there to stop you if you didn't have a valid ticket. I actually hope that's true. This is a very weird place, actually, because there was also John Layton recording a record. I don't know, was he meant to be doing a session or... And Akabilk was recording. He wasn't recording a television thing. He was in a sound recording studio. They're in some massive media multiplex. We've got Timothy Bateson, who, of course, you recognise from all manner of different things. I mean, he was I think he was the first janitor in Grinch Yeah, Hill. I immediately recognised him and said, oh, look, that's Eric Barker. <laughs> oh, well, I was wrong. No, I thought it was Freddie Garrity again. We had, well, hey, TV director Ronnie Stevens and another TV director, Frank Thornton. And of course, this keeps up with your tradition of every film that you've ever seen on Netflix featuring Frank Forton. Derek Nemo. Well, hey. Mario Fabrizzi, credited as Spaghetti Eater. That was a weird old scene. We'll come to that in a minute. I didn't know it was Ferdy Main. Another head waiter. It was two of them. I didn't spot Ferdy Main. I need to have a look at that again. And I didn't twig who the narrator was at first because he never mentioned being a desert rat, but you pointed it out to me. That it was, in fact, Derek Geiler. Way. But he didn't sound like Derek Geiler. Well, he wasn't Derek Geiler being funny. He sounded like the actual Derek Geiler, the person 
and not corky. But is it not a waste in a musical film to have Derek Gaila and not have him play his washboard? Especially as it's meant to be about trad jazz. So this is made to cash in on a boom that I think might have been winding down when the film came out. Obviously, people who liked rock and roll and pop music and skiffle also liked trad jazz, as we saw in Live It Up. David Hemming's character is a big fan of Kenny Ball. But I think there was also an element that if you're a little bit more... I associate trad jazz, you see, with students of the early 60s. It makes me think of Band the Bomb Marches. Remember we were saying last week that there was a letter in The Guardian condemning an essay about rock and roll, not because it was horrible modern loud music, but because it was commercial tripe. So if you're a little bit too good for commercial tripe, trad jazz. That's the impression I have. Trad jazz was fast and good for dancing to, but it wasn't that, you know, rock and roll stuff with all those bongo herberts. All these teen idols with no thoughts in their head. Now, Trad Jazz was played by real men. It's the kind of thing I can imagine being played during a March for Jobs, led by Michael Foote. You can imagine, like, Aka Bilk and what have you, playing at that. And probably, oh, what's the guy's name with the harmonica? Larry Adler, there you go. And Bill Owen and Clive Dunn would be dancing to it. Bill Owen, presenter of Dad, You're a Square. There you go. And then on the other hand, as, as well as you've got Kenny Ball and Ecker Bilk in this film, is Chris Barber in there? Yes, he is. Oh, okay, we're just lacking Monty Sunshine and we got the set. And the Paddock Sisters as well. But you've also got the Temperance Seven and they're in a different branch of that. They are doing something like trad jazz, but they're the art school end of things. They're postmodern. No, they, they were insincere. Postmodernism, that's coming into the 60s. It's something I think you see in this film. This film is directed by Richard Lester. I think this is his first feature film. And the way he handles it, it is, as I've said, the 60s. So we have like parts of the screen are blocked out by white blocks to just focus on thing, and then part of the picture is revealed another side. There's an amazing bit. Gene Vincent is singing a song, and we have a bit where I think there's a guitar and maybe a saxophone in the foreground. And they're obviously on the same platform as the camera, so the camera's slowly zooming into Gene Vincent, but the guitar and the other instrument are staying where they are. And it looks weird. It looks very modern. You can see things foreshadowing the monkeys. There's bits of what Melanie Mitchell calls monkey magic. There's that thing where, because these are young people who are into pop music, they can tear up the rules of the genre they're in. They don't get on a train to go down to London to go to see the television thing like happened in the Six Five Special. What happens is Derek Guiler, the narrator, just pulls them out of where they are and we see the edge of the film go off. We can see the sprocket holes slide off to the side as the background vanishes and then the background comes in and the bang, that's it. They're in television centre. I don't know, is it meant to be a different location or are we also to take that this televisual, radio recording, media multiplex also contains a supper club. Yeah, no, I don't think it was one place. I guess that's a television show, maybe. I don't know, it's a television show with a restaurant. They're visiting the media, comma, London. This is where it all is. David Jacobs is emceeing a pop show. Got Gary US Bonds there. 
And oh, there's Mario Fabrizi's there. Why is he called spaghetti? Why is he called Gary U.S. Bond? I mean, I get the play on words U.S. Bonds, but why Gary U.S. Bond specifically? You open Wikipedia and find out for yourself. Oh, that's brilliant. I do like that. Gary U.S. Bonds, who is still active today, according to his Wikipedia page, says he joined record producer Frank Guidas, is that correct? Guidas, a small uh, Legron Records label uh, where Guida chose Anderson's stage name, U.S. Bonds, in hopes that it would be confused with a public service announcement advertising the sale of government bonds <laughs> and thereby gain garner more radio airplay. Oh, dear. I bet that guy looked like Monty Landis and had a big cigar. <laughs> but they need to be a little smarter. So instead of having a little bit of plot where, oh gosh, we've got to get the right outfits. No, the narrator just changes their outfits for them. Ping! So we're getting into, look, we're all media saturated now. We all know how it works. So because we know how it works, let's just do it. Actually, one thing to just mention, remember when we said about Six Five Special, the only time we saw black people other than Cleo Lane, they were serving in the kitchen. In this, we have patrons at the supper club. And we have, you know, Gary Bonds is there, Chubby Checker's there. It's an integrated show. Just thought I'd mention that because it is part of the story. You might think that we're not taking it at the centre, but we're looking at something different. We're looking at rock and roll becoming British, and Britain was a much whiter country then. Have we mentioned the main two? Have we mentioned that it's actually Helen Shapiro and Craig Douglas who are the couple in this? We have now. I wasn't sure if we'd actually mentioned them already, but yeah, I thought I mentioned that in passing. Again, Helen Shapiro seen as one of the... Avatars of pre-Beatles pop. And of course, famously, the, the Beatles kind of really became a much bigger thing when they did that tour where they were actually one of her support acts. In terms of pop music, because you often get things that are quite unfair to her by making out that she was like a flash in the pan. She's had a very long career. It just so happens the pop part of it, it's, it's a tiny little burst at the beginning. Has she already had the success with Walking Back to Happiness yet? Uh, yes. So she's had like four or five top ten entries at this point. So this is kind of at the end of her pop career. She's still a big thing. In, this is 62. Still a big thing in 63. But as the 60s wear on, she gets more into the cabaret circuit and then, then musical theatre, then jazz. I just keep coming back to how stylized this is. It's obvious why they got this guy to direct the Beatles film debut. This is a movie that is leading. Richard Lester is pushing the 60s. They're not catching up with it. The idea behind the film might be to cash in on an idea and jump on a bandwagon. But in terms of how this movie behaves, this is pushing things. This one seemed to me the most upbeat, but without necessarily being saccharine. You've still got depictions of you know, people who are sort of anti-rock and roll. So it's not as if it's saying, oh, we're sort of contained with. There's actually much more antagonism in this than I think any film we've seen bar Expresso Bongo. But do you know what? I'm going to make a strange analogy here. This reminds me a little bit of the style of some of the Children's Film Foundation. Yes. Titles that we saw. We've got a protagonist, but he's a, a caricature protagonist. And he's acting in a you sort mean of... antagonist? Hey? You mean antagonist? That's what I meant. What did I say? Yeah. Protagonist. Oh, Wevs. 
But yeah, he's acting in a sort of silly manner. He's acting as that sort of stereotypical you know, big businessman and he's saying, oh, can't be doing all this kind of thing. Uh, and of course, as soon as he sees the chance to actually, you know, get his face in the uh, front and centre, then, you know, he's he's there. Of course he is. So he's the mayor of this unnamed town that Helen Shapiro and Craig Douglas come from. And he's worried about the influence that the trad jazz is having on the young people. They just sit around watching TV and then they dance to loud music. You haven't seen what a crazy world have you, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> you don't know when you're lucky. And he even has a machine in his office for smashing up records. He's going to ban trad jazz from the town. And we actually get a bit... With Helen and Craig are explaining to Akabilk what's happening. They want to put on a jazz come rock and roll come pop show to publicize the plight of the kids. And they're explaining to Akka what's happening. And we cut back to the mayor who's smashing the records. And then he puts an Akabilk record into his smashing machine. And we cut to Akka who goes, oh, no. Again, that postmodern, that unreal, that pre-monkey monkey magic, he can see what's happening yeah. <laughs> and reacts to it. There is no fourth wall. There's no fifth or sixth wall. Time is meaningless. Space is bendable. And you can tie it in a knot. This is Trad Jazz getting the rock video treatment. You can cut out these performances and they're more fast moving. They're not just showing the people playing. We're getting interesting angles. We're getting the Temperance 7 all lined up on a completely white background. We also have Gene... If you watched just the movies we watched, you'd think Gene Vincent was a British rocker who always wore white. I, I'm sorry, I've, I've gone off on, a, on, a, on a, a mind tangent because you mentioned about you see them from odd angles. And now I'm thinking of that Spike Milligan sketch. I don't know what series it's from, but he is singing a, a jazzy version of Yesterday. And it becomes apparent that the TV director does not want to feature him in this role. And so suddenly the, the camera cuts to where it's at the edge of the stage at the other end. And as it cuts to that, then the music also goes quiet. So it's as if he's basically at the back of the room and Milligan sort of spots this and so has to sort of run over to where the camera is to get close enough so that people can hear it. Well, this is where it all starts to come together. Earlier on, of course, I mentioned a show called Fred. And I believe at least some of that was directed by Richard Lester. Richard Lester is a friend of the goons. He's influenced by them. Because running, jumping and standing still film. There are bits of a show called Fred that I think might feature members of the Alberts. Who gave the name to the Temperance Seven. The Temperance Seven were influenced by that. Art school guys pretending to be Vodo Diodo 20s guys in an odd postmodern way. The Alberts opened BBC Two. No, it wasn't. It was, it was, was, yeah, uh, then it's two. B, but the first B, show B, was B. the Alberts Channel. It was, two, it was Play School. It was Play School. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was Play School. Right. Well, but, if I didn't say it, somebody, so was, saying, somebody was saying it to the, the MP3 player. There's a bit in the Alberts Channel 2 which has. It's not quite cutouts. It's not quite still photos. It's like it's been shot in stills. It's like moving pictures in it but there's only eight frames of animation the lead singer with his mouth open a certain way and then a mouth open a slightly different way so that if you knock it back and forth or move between these three frames it looks like he's singing but it also doesn't because most of the movement's missing and we have cut out animation in bits where the band is stomping but it's it looks moderately python-esque and richard lester directed the first two beatles films the beatles were big fans of the goons 
And this is it. It's Trad Dad. It's one of the sparks that's flown out of the crucible <laughs> of British popular culture of the 1960s. Car. <laughs> Isn't it fabulous all the way the ideas are being exchanged? And of course, Richard Lester is an American director. He can pick up senses of certain bits of American comedy in The Goons. Ray Ellington occasionally does an impression of Eddie Rochester Anderson. There's this weird strangulated... Jim Spriggs, he's got this odd strangulated... Or Adolphus Spriggs, as he's sometimes called. Just occasionally, if you ever heard of a comedian called Jerry Colonna, he sounds a bit goonish. He sounds like he's almost edging towards the Adolphus Spriggs sound that the Marx Brothers are an influence. And so this comes back. A Hard Day's Night happens. That influences the monkeys. So in some ways, it's a British influence, but in some ways, it's American influences are coming home. That's why we had to watch all this stuff. That's why this stuff is Can important. Out, and it's got nothing to do with the film or indeed the topic in hand or anything whatsoever. But just because you've been saying that just now has reminded me that we've seen George Carlin do a Hills and Green routine. Oh, yes. We watched a Flip Wilson show. They're doing this mock news report. Gary's really fascinated by American variety shows. And one of these days, it's probably going to take a heck of a lot of thinking, but one of these days we're probably going to talk about them. And I've been watching Laugh-In, which is repeated on the Decades channel over here, free to air. Fantastic. And as I'm talking, it's all day laughing on Decades. And oh, I wish I could afford that $250 <laughs> complete Laugh-In DVD box set. So you watch some Laugh-In, and I was talking about other things that were happening at that time, like the Smothers Brothers. Smothers Brothers was a bit less frenetic in pace, but was actually way more edgy in content than Laugh-In. It was much more, I'm going to say anti-Vietnam is really the thing that would really get them on certain people's enemy lists. Laughing would maybe occasionally say, oh, war isn't good. Uh, there's just a couple of semi-serious sketches in some of them. But <laughs> when, you, when you say war isn't good, are you quoting that Beach Boys song? Uh, I think that's far too <laughs> controversial a position for student demonstration time. <laughs> We'll come back to that at the end when we've got a bit of self-indulgent. We're still talking about the 60s, man. Oh, turned into boring boomers ourselves. <laughs> Weren't even there for it. Laughing's approach was Vietnam, eh? <laughs> Whereas Smothers Brothers was a bit more on Vietnam. It's, it's wrong. Uh, and as part of that, we watched an edition of the Flip Wilson show. And George Carlin's on. Boy, ooh, the controversy is thick in the air. The development of stand-up comedy. An art for which I have no enthusiasm. Not interested in stand-up comedy particularly myself. But anyway, no, I, I, I liked what he did. And Flip and George do this desk routine where they're pretending to be newsreaders. It's a standard bit. And I think it's Flip Wilson's character is called Stafford Cripps. <laughs> I don't know when the LA Gang the Cripps became a thing. Sir Stafford Cripps. I've heard of Stafford Cripps. It's kind of person my parents would mention the hell is going on here and Gary and I spent a lot of the rest of the show going Stafford Cripps and we started making jokes about the unexpected name that was going to turn up what's going to turn up at the end the Flip Wilson show with George Carlin written by Spike Mullins (laughs) (laughs) and at the end it's like written by blah 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 Sid Hills and Dick Green (laughs) 
And of course, yes, they did. They did go over. I mean, maybe if we'd really had our thinking heads on, we would have probably thought of Dennis Goodwin, who went over to the US. Did one they would do a routine about a card game? And I think you said you've seen this before yes, somewhere. Yes, yes. And of course, because Marco and Wise had done it. That was it. I was talking about how it's a standard bit. Oh, what's it called? Carlotta. Carlotta in this sketch. Uh, the monkeys do a version in their last episode called Cree Bitch. And the League of Gentlemen do Go Johnny Go 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 Go. And my favourite version is the goodies and spat. Just because it goes slightly beyond all of those. Grand spat! Anyway. <laughs> Have we finished with the pop movies? Only to mention that it's nice that I think we're concluding with Fitztrad Dad because I think that's actually one of the most pleasant of the, the films. We're giving it a three-line recommendation because it's got everything. It really spans rock and roll, the beginnings of it. It's a bit 6-5 specialist in its story and the trad boom. And yet there's elements of this that don't really burst through into the mainstream till like 64-65. Okay, so I'm not really qualified to do this, but I'm going to go all front row and I'm going to suggest that... The even with the reassuring presence of the pop DJs and what have you in this, there is a hint here that we've gone beyond pop and rock are here to stay, and now we've got to the point where it's able to do things on its own terms. Experimental bits and pieces in this, breaking the fourth wall and so on. It doesn't have to exist in that somewhat straight jacketed approach of six five special, where it's all, you know, very controlled. And here, it's it's got some elbow room to do what it wants. But and okay, Pete Murray will always to... be there. Exactly, yes. And I know this isn't fair because I haven't seen it, but obviously, but from what you've told me about it, it sounds like the logical conclusion of all of this is you end up with the Monkeys films or you end up with Magical Mystery Tour. And that's where it sort of stops <laughs> being fun as far as I'm concerned. Magical Mystery Tour is on the list. Magical Mystery Tour will be done. Please, everybody, let us know if you want us to do Head, the monkey's film. God. But yeah, so this has got the balance just right. This is fun. Yeah, that's what comes out from it. I, I would love to see, I'd actually love to see a really, really nice HD print of this. Uh, I mean, it would lovely if, like, talking pictures or somebody showed it, but it would also be really nice if, like, Sky Cinema, you know, put this out in 4K or something like that. Network, would, get would, the Blu-ray out. If you haven't already, actually, I should have checked. So we bid farewell for the moment to pop and rock movies of the early 60s. Uh, so let's just briefly talk about the Beach Boys. And Gary, what was it that happened? <laughs> well, no, I mentioned I've got this funny internet here, that even though I'm in Glasgow, it gives me access to American things, you know, like Thanksgiving and what have you. And I was faffing around with one of my apps the other day, and it's basically like a sort of American version of Skygo, Fortune TV, anywhere, that kind of thing. And, of course, bearing in mind the time difference, if I'm faffing around with this thing at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm actually getting what's on in the States at, say, 3 a.m. Eastern time. And one of the channels I landed on, I spotted something that was Beach Boys related, but I couldn't on the app because it was on the iPhone. It was too small to actually be able to see the name of the program itself. All I could see was Beach Boys. So I thought, well, I'll have a quick gander, and I'll mention this until later on. And there was Mike Love from Santa's Rock and Roll Rave Up, or whatever it was. So I recognised himself, and I thought... 
oh, what's going on here? And straight away, it looked like it was on the box cable channel circa 1998. So it looked like, you know, NTSC to PAL back to NTSC. It looked absolutely chronic. And he stood there in this sort of empty sports stadium. And he's saying, and I, I just love the way that this was phrased because it just sounded like something from Harry Enfield, you know, spoof documentary. He said, as the 60s were ending, we realised that people, you know, they still liked cars and girls and surfing, but there were also other things going on. Things like Vietnam. And then it cut to this concert where they were singing this really sitting on the fence song about how it was basically the least political song you've ever heard. And I'm explaining all this to Till as I'm talking to him that, that evening and saying, yeah, they were singing this weird song about it. it was like, okay, on, on the one hand, there were all these kids and they were all sort of protesting and they were the police and they had to, to, to keep order. And, and well, the police and, and, and the kids, you know, they, it was it was all rather tense. And, and this was the summer of protest and yay, and the sunshine was out. And I mentioned this to you and you could not stop laughing. And eventually you said, no, stop. I don't, I don't want to hear any more of this. I was well aware what he was talking about. He didn't need to explain it to me. <laughs> Student Demonstration Time is one of those Beach Boys songs that Beach Boys fans flinch or laugh about. Yes, it's an attempt to do a protest song without actually protesting. So it's talking about the Kent State riots. I won't even quote it because parts of it are actually in horrific taste. And right at the end, it says, stay away if there's a riot going on. (laughs) Oh, please. And this is on an album that was helping get them a slightly hipper crowd. This is an album which, for the most part, is very good and quite somber and bleak. That song's in it. And a song about washing your feet. He hit a sore point. So earlier on, you were mentioning about Laugh-In, Smallest Brothers, what have you. What was the name of that show with Tony Randall? What's it all about, world? Beach Boys could have performed that song on this. Oh, yes, yes. Would have been perfect for it. The apolitical protest team. Marge Simpson says, that's the good kind of satire, the kind that doesn't hurt anybody. (laughs) And that's very much what What's It All About World was kind of about. To quote Bill Cotton when he was asked, why doesn't the BBC do satire anymore? He says, well, of course we do. We have Mike Yarwood. Hey. So next week... I'm not going to be here. I refuse to work under these conditions. I have certain demands of the management if they want me to do any more work on this podcast. Everybody out, is it? It is. Well, yes, indeed, because we're going to be talking about industrial action on British TV. Now, this is a sort of particular interest of mine. I've always been fascinated by not necessarily so much, because that's not what our show's about. We're not necessarily going to be going into the politics of it. Lower mentioned obviously details about the disputes themselves, but the unions involved and but the management and so on. But what we're particularly interested in in this discussion is the impact that it actually had on television. So it's obviously something that you don't tend to see a great deal of now. Oh, it still does happen. There's been incidents in the last couple of years, for example, of NUJ strikes affecting BBC output, particularly on things like the Rolling News channels. But We're going to have a good old grand sweep of industrial action on British TV, the kind of impact that it had, some of the unusual little foibles about the the system that we had in the UK, particularly on ITV, which meant that there were little odd instances where a dispute could have a a really bizarre knock-on effect. I mean, industrial disputes in London could actually increase the amount of local output 
in some areas. That sounds weird, but that's one of the side effects as to the way things were arranged. And so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of the the big live shows that were affected. Uh, Eurovision is going to get name-checked, obviously. Yeah, we're just going to talk about the, the circumstances, how it came about, how it sort of eventually died off. And obviously we'll touch on the most famous disputes of all, such as ITV79, TVM87. But we'll also talk about some of the more unusual instances. And Joni Loves Chachi will get a mention as well. Excellent. We haven't given up the pop, but we're giving you a couple of weeks break. So that's all to come next week. I've been Tilter Issa. I've been Gary Roger. And it's goodbye from Jeff Cakes of Proust. <laughs>